Hi, friends, and welcome to another episode of the End of Sport podcast. This is Johanna Mellis speaking here. And I really, really, I mean, I say this about every episode, or I think this about every episode, but I really genuinely cannot wait for you all to hear um, what we have for you today. So for this episode, I had the absolute pleasure um, to interview um, an Egyptian-Canadian journalist, short story writer, and translator, uh, Karim Zidane. And if you don't know him already, if you do not read his work, I urge you to do so. I really urge you to subscribe to his Substack called Sports Politica, which we will be linking in the show notes. Um, this was one of the most informative conversations I've had in, 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 in a long time, just because the breadth of his knowledge and just his, his deep expertise in geopolitics and the nuances of, of, of sports and politics and diplomacy and activism and all these things, it's just so impressive. It just, it really bowled me over even just preparing for the interview um, and trying to figure how to develop questions in a way um, where we could touch on as many things as possible because he just writes about so many important issues. Um, for example, I mentioned this at the top of the interview right after I introduced him that um, as I was reading um, articles on his Substack, I just kept finding more and more articles that were relevant either to um, the Israeli war in Gaza or just about uh, sports and politics and other contexts. And I could have added more questions for us to talk for another hour. For example, literally an email came in my inbox from, about it from, it was from his newsletter about a piece on kind of questioning whether the U.S. is safe to hold the World Cup as a result of the shooting at the um, the at the parade at the Super Bowl uh, parade. Um, so just so many, so many pieces. There's so much that we discuss in here. And I, I hope that you find this as informative and as nuanced as I did. Um, I just, like I said, I really appreciate his careful attention to detail and nuance. And as we talk about in the interview, as he talks about, that when it comes to discussing war and violence, asymmetrical war and all of these things, it is absolutely crucial. The way it's crucial all the time, it's crucial to pay attention and focus on the human element of these stories. And one way to do that is to focus on the nuances of the specific details and on the individuals and their names and their stories, because it is easy to get caught up in just talking about geopolitics. It's always easy to get caught up talking about the IOC and FIFA and, you know, the NCAA leaders and all of these people. When what really matters is that how these policies, how these people's decisions end up impacting human lives. Um, and that when we're debating things such as like fascism and genocide and, you know, the ICJ's ruling and all of these things, it's not that these things are not important. But when we're having these debates, these kind of more like abstract or theoretical or academic debates that in a way we lose focus on how these how these processes how people's actions are harming um populations that are usually the most vulnerable the most minoritized due to histories of global colonialism and fascism and racial capitalism and things like that and authoritarianism so i think i will end it there and kick it over to the show as always please rate review and subscribe um and please share the podcast with people that you think might find it interesting so um, thank you for listening, and I hope that you learned something from the show.
Karim Sedan is an Egyptian-Canadian journalist, short story writer, and translator. His analyses focus broadly on sport and politics, including significant reporting on sport and authoritarian regimes, such as Russia, Brazil, and the Middle East. His work has appeared in the New York Times, The Guardian, Foreign Policy, ESPN, and The American Prospect, amongst many others. And some of his work has also been very cool, spotlighted in an award-winning HBO Real Sports documentary in 2017. Karim, thank you so much for joining me and welcome to The End of Sport. Oh, it's a real pleasure, Joanna. Thank you so much for having me. So you have written so many good pieces um, that have come out, I mean, always, but lately on your subject, Sports Politica. So I really encourage listeners, please subscribe to that if you do not already. Um, I was just skimming over the piece that you just published about questioning whether the U.S. should even host the World Cup (laughs) after the shooting. So I was like, I I don't think I can add this, but I just really, really encourage uh, listeners to look at it and and to really just like learn from your work because there's uh, your, your expertise is so vast. It's just really impressive. Um, That's very kind of you to say. Thank you. (laughs) Of course. Um, So today we're really going to be focusing on uh, various elements of sporting politics as related to Israel's war on Gaza. Um, And I really hope uh, people find this a productive and informative conversation. And I wanted to start with this piece that you published this past Wednesday um, about how an Israeli athlete, MMA fighter Haim Ghazali, ended up targeting you as well as an outlet that published a factual piece of yours. And they did so in an incredibly violent and what seemed to me a very scary way. And just like if we needed any more evidence, um, this incident seems to illustrate the real dangers um, that particular groups of people can face when doing really critical and crucial reporting on the subject. Um, and I, it goes without saying, but I, I, I hope that you're doing okay. I'm sure that you have, you know, faced, um, a fair bit of, um, pushback, if not like outright harassment in your work. Um, but I was wondering to the extent that you felt comfortable, if you could kind of explain like what has happened. Oh, so, I mean, I appreciate you asking about how I'm doing. I'm honestly, as, as you mentioned, I've, mm-hmm. I've had to deal with unfortunately worse than this before i faced mm-hmm. death threats and i faced significant mm-hmm. harassment from from autocrats in the past mm-hmm. and 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 legal issues all everything you can imagine basically Jeez. so honestly an israeli far right mma fighter wasn't going to do anything that was going to appall me too much but mm-hmm. he most certainly got very close here so for those who don't know haim Ghazali is as I, as i mentioned a far right mma fighter big big supporter of benjamin netanyahu uh, has long been so, and he's about fifty years old now. So he's he's retired from from fighting, but he did have a pretty reasonable career for organizations outside of the UFC, and and built a bit of a name for himself. I'd say he's probably Israel's most well known MMA mm-hmm. fighter. Mm-hmm. So uh, in in the aftermath of October seventh, he started inscribing artillery shells with the names of Muslim MMA fighters. So people like, uh, you know, Khabib Nurmagomedov, the former Dagestani uh, UFC champion, Hamza Chemaev, a Chechen UFC fighter who's a big star these days, uh, Bilal Muhammad, who's a Palestinian fighter. All these names were inscribed on an artillery shell. So this obviously caught my attention. It caught a lot of people's attention. This made mainstream news at the time, uh, even though very few of those websites were particularly critical of, of Haim mm. uh, for for. for for posting such really awful, awful pictures. And I mean, he's targeting these athletes. I went through their, their accounts and none of them were posting anything, uh, 
other than solidarity for Palestine, really, mm. in, in, in very reasonable ways by all Western standards, even. And yet that was enough to bother him and, and for him to display this form of, you know, Islamophobia and xenophobia by specifically targeting them on these artillery shells. So I thought to myself, all right, well, I've done a lot of MMA reporting in the past. How, how different can this be? So I decided to look into Haim a bit more. And I found that this is something that he's been doing for a while now. He's just inscribing names of different people, uh, posting it online, whether to get attention for himself or to try to piss off these other, these other MMA fighters. Who really knows? But he's uh, really also somebody who has, has worked very closely with the Middle Eastern uh, autocrats, actually. He's tried to... Mm. The, the two countries in the Gulf right now who had normalized relations with, with Israel, most recently being Bahrain and uh, the United Arab Emirates, he actually reached out to both countries and was trying to host these MMA events for peace, sort of uh, displaying in, in, in a form of propaganda how these normalized ties between Israel and the Gulf is leading to, to peace. So imagine this, this far-right guy who's inscribing mm. the names of Muslim MMA fighters on artillery shells bound for Gaza actually was the person who was claiming he was going to also be promoting peace by working with these autocrats in the Middle East. Mm. So the whole thing is irony on top of irony, really. What else I discovered is that he has, if we thought his standard social media was terrible, he has, an, he has a Telegram uh, channel. And Telegram is one of these um, alternative sort of social media platforms for people who don't who don't know. And that channel is really full of some of the most disgusting statements I've seen across the board uh, with regards to the with regards to the ongoing war. I have I, some of it is too appalling to even restate. I have given some examples in the articles I had done in the past. For instance, one of the really really awful ones he did very recently is he posted a picture of a dead Palestinian baby that was wrapped in a white cloth clearly before burial. And then he posts that picture alongside a second picture of another child. I don't know where he got that, that, that other photo from. And his caption read, I found his brother for sale for only 216 shekels for those who are interested with a mm. smiley face afterwards. So mm. it's heartless. It's, it's inhumane. It's just really horrific stuff that's coming out of his channel. So I exposed it. I wrote an article mm. exposing all that. And the article went up on Sports Politica and then was republished on BloodyElbow.com. And Bloody Elbow is an MMA website I had worked with for, for many, many years. Sort of a dogged MMA website known for its investigative journalism uh, in the space. Pretty much the only outlet that did such journalism in mixed martial arts, which is generally just a cesspool. And uh, it was republished there. And that's obviously where, where Ghazali, Haim Ghazali, got, uh, noticed the article. So he... I woke up a couple of days ago to a tweet from him saying, for you, and it was a picture of an artillery shell inscribed bloody elbow, F you, Haim Ghazali. And there were several other pictures, one of which included, <laughs> included my name inscribed on one of these artillery shells as well. So it's really sick, awful behavior. But we have to, there's a bit of, <laughs> I'd like to think of the humor here a little bit, because the irony of this is, is that he tweeted this at me saying, this is for your fake article. And my article was literally <laughs> talking about how he is inscribing the names of people on artillery shells. So he responds <laughs> and apparently proves that my article's fake by doing exactly that. <laughs> it's just it's just a bit ridiculous i find you know what i mean and at the end of the day i'm fine here i've i've mm. seen and, and handled worse the problem is is not me the problem is 
these artillery shells are, are bound for Gaza. These are yeah. going to target actual human beings. And we know what the death toll already is. It's above 28,000 people. And that's, mm-hmm. that's a low bar at this point. Like that we're, that, that's, we're, 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 we're putting that at the minimum possible figure here mm-hmm. that we can confirm. So it's horrific on so many levels outside of how I feel, honestly, Joanna. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. I mean, no, and I appreciate the kind of broader context that you that you bring to the story, and just like the death, the, the highlighting at the end that the destination for where mm-hmm. these artillery shells are going to go, right? That is like the most pressing issue. Is sort of the the the, the sort of not even sort of the deathly violence that these are these are intended mm-hmm. for. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, and so, he uses them as as a way to sort of troll people. It's so. Yeah inhumane it's so dehumanizing mm-hmm. on so mm-hmm. many levels i i would almost pity and feel sorry for a human being like that that you've you've reached this level of yeah you, i can't even think of the term right now but yeah it just i if it wasn't if he if it wasn't so disgusting i would almost mm-hmm. feel sorry for this person mm-hmm. yeah 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 Oof. yeah seriously so I thought we would talk um, about some of your work um, related to Israel, the Israeli state's use of the football stadium, Yarmouk Stadium, where it's um, in December, there were pictures and, and video clips that came out about the stadium being used as, as a site of violence against Palestinians. Um, and you wrote about it at the end of December, and then I believe touched on it again in early January. Um, now, using stadiums have like stadiums have long been used as sites of and strategies for mass state violence and even genocide. So it's, this is not new. And as you mentioned in your pieces, authoritarian regimes ranging from Spain's Francisco Franco, Chile's Pinochet, and the Taliban all made use of football stadiums as concentration camps, if not killing sites in some circumstances. And when I teach about the Holocaust, I talk about how the Vichy government in France worked with the Nazis to use mm-hmm. the velodrome d'hiver to round up and deport not french jews but non-french jews the ones Mm -hmm. that have been that have been fleeing nazism and the deportations from the velodrome d'hiver ended up being the largest deportation of jews from france in the entire holocaust and so i was wondering like in your view what do you think it is about stadiums that make it so that different regimes have borrowed this tactic, whether knowingly or not, I guess it's not really the, the issue here, but like, what is it that makes stadiums a, a be used as a tool for mass violence like this? Well, we always talk about the role of football, say in the world of politics, but I think it goes beyond that. I think football is a key element of societies in many ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is it is a, a a facet of so many different cultures, and it's so deeply rooted in cultures and histories of a variety of countries. And this applies, of course, to the Arab world, and most certainly applies to Palestine. So it really doesn't surprise me that as Israel ethnically cleanses the actual people of Gaza, that it will do the same thing to the libraries of Gaza, the sporting centers of Gaza. Why, if you're going to People seem to think that this is just a physical approach, that you're targeting the actual human beings themselves. No, 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 no. You truly want to eliminate people. You eliminate their essence. You eliminate their culture, their 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 academia, their knowledge, their history. That's how you actually do it. So Yarmouk is one of many different elements of this uh, displays of ethnic cleansing that we're seeing right now in Gaza. And 
on, I have to admit that was one of the things that I found hardest uh, to 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 mm. witness because I really didn't expect that we would see the type of photos we saw coming out of mm. Yarmouk Stadium. And we're talking Yarmouk isn't just a random football stadium either. This is one of the oldest sports facilities in Palestine. Mm. It's it, again, you're targeting a piece of history, right? This is a place that so many people, so many Palestinians, so many Ghazawis saw moments of joy there rare moments of actual joy uh, moments where they felt like they could just be like everybody else participate in sports and prepare themselves for international competitions you know and it wasn't and Yarmouk stadium had a track and fields uh, course around it as well so it was used for gymnastics it was used for running it was used for all sorts of different things not even just football which is palestine's national sport at the end of the day but what we ended up seeing is it being turned into an internment camp by Israeli troops. So from what we see in the photos, dozens of men, women, children were all rounded up, stripped down to their underwear and blindfolded. Some of them were parked in front of the goalposts for pictures to be taken of them. Like the, the, the symbolism is just extraordinary. If this was a leak, how could they have made such a mistake, the IDF, mm-hmm. to let these photos come out? Because it it's just so poignant and powerful and horrific to witness. But beyond that, what people didn't get to see is the fact that IDF tanks were basically leveling the pitch with bulldozers. Of course, their claim, as it is with every scenario, is that they're looking for Hamas tunnels beneath it. Mm-hmm. They obviously found nothing under Ali Yarmouk Stadium, but uh, that did not stop them from destroying the pitch. So now not only do you have a situation where this, this historic stadium was turned into an internment camp, but, and which, which of course comes with the trauma afterwards. So say you leave this place and you leave the people, somehow they get to go back to this stadium. What does that stadium represent now to so many people? Yeah. Is it yeah. going to be a place where you sit and cheer the way you used to? Maybe one day, but how getting through that trauma <laughs> is, is not going to be easy. And at the same time, by leveling the pitch, You've taken away their ability to actually perform in these places. Mm-hmm. And it's really horrific stuff. And I think, how does a country like Israel not learn from history when it claims so much that it's rooted in history, in the Holocaust, and in so many things like that, 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 that brings about this Jewish state? Mm-hmm. How do they not learn from history that they are now repeating themselves? As you mentioned, right, these, this is not the first time we've seen football stadiums used as mass detention centers. 1939, Franco, uh, being the, the, the fascist dictator for in, in Spain who ruled really until 1975, he converted three of Madrid's football stadiums into concentration camps, including the stadium used by Real Madrid. Right? Mm-hmm. In 1973, Chile's national stadium was also turned into a makeshift prison camp, as well as a torture and execution facility by the Pinochet dictatorship. Right? This, this is basically what we're what we're witnessing right now. And mm-hmm. you had how do you how do you look at what's taking place and view it in any other way? Absolutely. And and in one of your articles, um, you were able to um, hear or at least um, share the words of a Palestinian artist named Hazib Harb about his feelings about the stadium being used in this way. And he said that the Israeli violence in the stadium had been, uh, was turning, was quote, turning our beautiful memories into a dystopian nightmare. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering, you know, like, how did he reach this position? Like, I guess it seems like a well, of course, someone would say that, but like, I don't know what had been his experience there and kind of what might other people be feeling about seeing this happen to such a beloved site for them. 
Well, see, you know what's really interesting here is that Hazem isn't even somebody who who would consider himself a fan of sports. This is an artist mm, who, mm. who spent his his youth uh, submerged in the art world and, and in that mm. creative sphere, rather than sort of the same thing that drove most youth, which is athletics and sports. Yet he even has these memories of 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 uh, Yarmouk Stadium primarily because his father used to coach there, and so did his uncle. Mm. He had photos. He showed me the photos. Right. This is their history. And for that to be changed in this fashion, of course, how could he view it as anything other than a dystopian nightmare? We call football the beautiful game, <laughs> but there's nothing beautiful about what's taking place right now. But I'm glad you really mentioned Hazem, because even when I had reached out to him again to try and get, you know, and to speak out a bit more about what's taking place, he really wasn't comfortable talking more. And he told me, listen, mm-hmm. Kareem, we're going through a lot right now, and I need to focus on what's happening. And mm-hmm. what turned out was happening is his father had actually been detained by, 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 by uh, the IDF as well. And nobody's heard from him since. I think he was taken on February 2nd or so. Mm-hmm. And wow. uh, yeah, it was, it, was beginning, it was beginning of February around then that he was taken. And, and if I'm not mistaken... He's been told now, and this is that his father, this is a guy who's, who's over 70 years old. You know, he's, he's, he's got issues with his heart and he's being, detor- he's being detained and tortured in prison right now. That's, that's at least what's being told. And that's horrific. So not only are you witnessing things like Yarmouk Stadium, your memories being destroyed and tarnished by an invading army, but your own family is being taken and held hostage as well in that sense. It's, it's, it's horror story after horror story, honestly. Absolutely. And it's, I mean, I mean, absolutely terrifying. I mean, not a, I, I not having been through anything like that, you know, just imagining like your family members, right. Being taken from you and just having yeah, no idea what's going on, except for just really awful, like bodily and psychological harm. What I assume is awful bodily and psychological mm-hmm. harm, right. When you talk about being tortured, um, and I mean, related to that, right? Like sports have continued. Like it, this is not to say that like Palestinian athletes have not been able to compete in sports. And so I was wondering if, if you could talk a bit about how the war has impacted Palestinian athletes so far. And for example, like it really is like shocking to believe that the men's soccer team was able to reach the round of 16 in the Asian Cup under these, like we've been saying, really horrific circumstances. It's really been exceptional watching uh, watching Palestine at at the Asian Cup. Really, mm-hmm. uh, what a! <laughs> I'll tell you. I'll tell you something, John. I mm-hmm. I consider myself really a cynic when it comes to sports law. I mean, it's hard not to be with the type of work I do in in the mm-hmm. space, mainly covering the 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 politics, the corruption, the dark side of sports. Mm-hmm. It's hard not to see everything only through that lens basically Mm -hmm. so whenever somebody tries to give me these romanticized notions of sports i'm the first to shut it down and say Mm. come on i can't really buy that can you but really this was one of those rare just feel good stories to an extent if we can really use that term here where it's something's Mm -hmm. actually seems like they're they're truly in this sense competing for something above themselves and bigger than themselves Mm-hmm. And the fact that they were able to make history of the tournament, make the round of the of 16 was just extraordinary. And you see the way they were playing. It's like they were playing. It's like they were playing with everything they had in them. 90 mm-hmm. minutes just going back and forth. Really incredible stuff. And when you think about the fact that, you know, some of the players 
defender Muhammad Salah, for instance, his family is still in Gaza, right? Mm-hmm. When when at the start of the tournament, I remember he told, can't remember which outlet, I think I think it was AFP or something that they were living that the family was just living in a tent after their home was destroyed. So they're moving from place to place. You have to imagine that they're probably stuck in Rafah right now of all places. And we know that there's an imminent attack on Rafah where over a million people have been displaced and placed in, in this tiny, tiny... I cannot express to, to readers how small Rafah is. I'm an Egyptian. I can tell you right now that whole part of the border is tiny. It's, it's, it's unfathomable what's going on. So for Palestine and Palestinian athletes and those footballers to still be able to wake up in the morning, go to their training, and then compete in games is extraordinary. They, and, and, and it's not like it was smooth sailing for them. They lost 4-1 to Iran in the opening game, and yet they still continued to, to perform after that and made it to the round of 16. It's a rare time, really, for me where I can say that, that that's that sports had that romantic notion behind sports that sports can really represent something bigger and 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 can unite people and it can really bolster that support for a nation it really felt like it was a it actually was applicable in in the case for palestine there absolutely and i mean there's such a rich history of sport being used for for resistance whether nationalist or not right so i yeah i think with especially with communities under siege minoritized communities etc right i mean there's so there's the whole platform there, especially with an international sport to be able to like exert some kind of either individual or like collective political identity or message about themselves. And it's, it's, it's great that like, they are able to do that. And, and like you said, we always need to be wary of sort of these kind of <laughs> Disney fied, however you want to say it, you know, that's um, a great like way to say moments. it actually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah I, um, yeah. So, um, but yeah, so that's really, really great to see. And obviously like hope that, Hope that somehow, right, that their families are okay. And I mean, I imagine too, right, at the end of, of, of these games, right, kind of the, not that, not saying that everyone would be able to like totally distance themselves from what's going on, but then I just imagine the kind of, um, the, 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 the stress and mental anguish about going home, kind of how that must feel. Oh, absolutely. I can't even imagine what they're going through or where they're going home to or what they have to deal with. So it was, Maybe a, a a brief moment where they could focus on nothing but but sport, if that was even possible for them. Mm-hmm. But conversely, it was the same for at least, let's say, Palestinians in the diaspora and Arabs mm-hmm. in general in the diaspora, mm-hmm. and anybody really who who calls themselves a supporter of Palestine. It was maybe a moment of joy watching them make the round of sixteen, watching them win some of those games. Maybe can we actually call it a moment of joy with with so much destruction going on? But to an extent, and I'm I, I'm really not trying to minimize absolutely anything, but it 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 at least I know I I had a smile on my face when when they were succeeding, and I wonder what other people were feeling. I wonder what Palestinians themselves were feeling. I know the ones mm-hmm. I spoke to were delighted. I know mm-hmm. in their hearts of hearts they were delighted, but it, it's really such a difficult time. But on, on this point, I'd like to make I'd like to say one more thing. The team mm-hmm. itself has realized that they are now a symbol of, they're part of the symbol of resistance in Palestine. Mm-hmm. You're seeing them, for instance, they're about to host friendly games in uh, South Africa. And uh, mm. you really have to think of the symbolism there, right? right South Africa right. being the country that, that, is, that, that came to Palestine's aid uh, in, the, in, the international, in the International Court of Justice. Mm. And from there, 
now Palestine wants to go and take part in this friendly in South Africa. There's just incredible symbolism there about the country mm -hmm. that overcame apartheid and has come to Palestine's aid and the Palestinians going and playing there and these matches together. This is this is interesting elements of, of football. We want to call it diplomacy, we want to call it soft power. It's just really fascinating watching uh, the Palestinian team recognize its its role right now, the football team, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. and further that to gain more unity. Absolutely. I, yeah, I didn't know about this the friendly match. So yeah, the symbolism is is remark um, remarkable. I mean, not like surprising, but it's just mm -hmm. really really shows like how much both like South African football leaders and I'm sure football players, but also obviously Palestinian players like realize the potential kind of launching, not launching point, but you know, how this could serve to hopefully end the war, right. Or, or, mm -hmm. or kind of stop, stop the attacks stop the genocide. So um, yeah, I'll have to sort of certainly we keep should, my ear on the ground. We should that. be wary when it comes to stuff like this. <clears throat> again, mm -hmm. here's the cynic in me coming out again, mm -hmm. but I saw for instance, Qatar really utilized its soft power when it came to a, hosting the, the Asian Cup and then presenting the tournament as sort of in dedication to Palestine. From the very mm. beginning, they, they met the Palestinian team at the airport. Everybody was wearing the kufiyas uh, around, around their necks. Uh, the, the AFC officials in Qatar couldn't you know, tell you enough that they intended to uh, donate all the revenue from the tournament to humanitarian causes in Gaza. Mind you, all this is phenomenal. But I am a firm believer that none of these countries do things out of selfless, you know, mm -hmm. good goodwill. Mm -hmm. There might be certain elements of that. And, and, and granted, if there is good coming out of it, like humanitarian aid, etc., that's wonderful. Good on Qatar mm -hmm. for that. But Qatar has its own political intentions, right? At the end of the day, this is a country that is one of the few mediators in the world, one of the few countries that has a role mediating in this current war that's going on, can actually mediate between Israel and, and uh, Hamas as well. It's fascinating to me that Qatar also, with its position, contrary to much of the, of the Gulf region, has always been sort of the rebel force, is really trying to cement itself as the protector and savior of Palestine. Maybe it's because it doesn't want Saudi Arabia to present itself that mm. way. I mm. think we should generally be very wary. We should be grateful, I guess, for the help that does come from them, mm. but very wary as to their true intentions. Yeah. No, thank you for that clarification. And this is this is parts of geopolitics that I'm woefully ignorant about. <laughs> and and also, it also reminds me of Russia, right? Where oh, Russia yeah. right now is what I saw on Twitter hosting some like major anti-colonial conference. And, and I'm just like, <laughs> oh my God, okay. Like, you know, like you said, like they're not doing this always if Oh, well, Russia really ever, but right, they're not always doing this out of like altruistic reasons, right? That exactly. there are motives behind what they're doing. Most certainly. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Now, so, I mean, we've, you've kind of talked a bit about like the state of athlete activism and I wanted to dive in that further and people maybe, and probably have been quick to claim that it's only pro-Palestinian athletes who have been quote unquote politicizing sports, but you know, we know that to be inaccurate. And so I was wondering what are some of the other ways that we haven't talked about so far that athletes have been trying to use their positions and relative cultural power to address what's going on. It's an interesting one because it's it's it all really depends on the sport. We've seen all mm -hmm. sorts of different uh, 
uh, approaches take place. I just saw, you know, the Irish women's basketball team refused to mm-hmm. shake hands with is with the Israeli team, and there's there was my goodness, that was a tense week going on because apparently the Israeli basketball team had been posing with some IDF soldiers, and some of the pictures they posted of themselves included the guns in them. It was just mm-hmm. really awful messaging. I mean, mm-hmm. whoever is doing the PR for Israel these days, oh, hoo, hoo, absolutely <laughs> needs to get fired because once Terrible. upon a time, they were good at this. They were good at the propaganda. <laughs> they really were. <laughs> they had so many people <laughs> fooled for so long. It's just like, what happened here <laughs> on that mm-hmm. level, right? But I've seen, I've seen interesting uh, incidents take place in mixed martial arts as well. Mm-hmm. In the world of the UFC, which I unfortunately have had to cover for a very long time, uh, there have been certain athletes who draped themselves in Palestinian flags, including champions, actually. The UFC mm-hmm. was uh, quick to keep that off the broadcast, let's say. If you go back and watch mm-hmm. any of the YouTube clips they have, their lightweight champion, Islam Makhachev, who's a Muslim fighter from Dagestan, he drapes himself in the Palestinian flag, but none of that, you would, you would never know by looking at the YouTube clips for the fight. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> Hamza Chimaev, who's this big Chechen uh, uh, UFC star now, but someone who actually also is a controversial figure in his own right because he's very closely associated to Chechen warlord Ramzan Kadyrov. He 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 actually did a very strange post-fight interview after one of his fights back in October. Actually, in English, all he said was, uh, "I call for peace. Children shouldn't be dying, etc." It was a statement that got cheers all around, and everybody could almost agree on that. You know, every we don't want more killing. We don't want any of that. It was a very sort of uh, simplified statement. And then in Chechen, right after that, I mean, we're talking. He takes one breath and then continues in Chechen, directs his statement at Ramzan Kadyrov, and says, uh, "Chief, please send me to Palestine so I can die with my brothers." Mm. So two completely mm-hmm. different statements in English yeah. there and in Chechen. So the UFC mm. somehow did not catch that one because I guess it was in Chechen and they don't understand mm-hmm. it. So that's still up on the YouTube channel. <laughs> you can wow. go back and see his declaration to go to war right there. Uh, there's honestly plenty, uh, plenty of examples. Some of the examples I have been, I've been trying to, to highlight are the ones that people are less likely to see. A lot mm. of that has been examples from the arab world really i have seen the teams that i follow in egypt for instance being al ahli i'm a huge al ahli fan being egypt's biggest uh, most popular football club this is a club that has a significant political history and its and its ultras groups were well known revolutionaries during the arab spring so it comes as no surprise that they would want to be political on topics like this but it's also the players they've been flashing the double peace sign behind their backs that's that's reflective of the handala cartoon by ahmed al naji and uh, it's it's a resistance symbol and a right of return symbol for palestinians and i thought it was just such a smart uh, peaceful, non-violent uh, protest that v- is, is, is rooted in the Arab world, is rooted in a knowledge of Palestine. And if you get it, you know it and you understand it, but others ne- won't necessarily uh, get it. I've seen that, those, that symbol flashed repeatedly, including actually the Al-Ahli team did so in, in Saudi Arabia when they were competing in the Club World Cup just a couple of months ago. They beat Saudi Arabia's Al-Hilal team, and that's how they celebrated their win, was a show of resistance for Palestine. Mm. Like that I always really, really, truly appreciate. There is one that I'll never forget. I still think it is the most powerful to me. And I referenced this in the Guardian Football Weekly uh, podcast as well that I was on recently. 
an Egyptian striker named Ahmed Hassan Koka. He scored a hat trick of goals for 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 a Turkish team and dedicated his goals to uh, a girl called Reem, this three year old girl who was killed by Israeli airstrikes while sleeping in her bed, her and her brother. Mm-hmm. So he lifted his jersey to reveal like a picture of, 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 of Reem, who had been, was deceased and bloodied in this picture, being hugged yeah. by her grieving grandfather, whose name was mm-hmm. Khaled Nabhan. Now the picture came with this Arabic phrase that roughly translates to the essence of, of, of my essence, or the essence of the soul. And in Arabic, it's ruh ruh which is how the grandfather described his granddaughter's innocence when he was asked about her. So that's all he had to say. He asked her, how, you, how does this make you feel? And he says, this, she was my, she was ruh ruh to me. She was, she was the essence of my soul. And that, that picture on his, just printed on his t-shirt, hit me so hard. It resonated so much because her death, Reem's death, coupled with her grandfather's pure grief mm-hmm. elevated them to a, a symbol of, of the collective punishment that's being levied at Palestinians right now mm-hmm. for, for <laughs> crimes they did not commit, right? Mm-hmm. And it, it, it really, truly resonated with me. And it, to this day, I think it's one of the most powerful, powerful uh, displays of solidarity and resistance for Palestine. Absolutely. And such like a personal, like a per, such a personal message that has such a collective power, it sounds like. And I really think that's the way we should be. It's easy mm-hmm. to say on the outside looking in, mm-hmm. I guess. But and I'm not here to tell anybody how to how to how to show resistance or how to discuss it. But at least I found mm-hmm. for me focusing on the human side of it rather mm-hmm. than trying to get into the divisive political weeds of which term to use here or there. I feel mm-hmm. like we never get to a response. There's so much tribalism and so much. Uh, entrenchment, political entrenchment here over these issues, whether it's Israel, Palestine, whether it's things in the U.S. that we get so focused on certain words sometimes when we and we forget that human rights are should not be political to begin with. It's not something we should even be arguing about. If we view everybody legitimately as human and as equal in the same way, then these are topics we should automatically be agreeing on. It shouldn't come down to well, I'm left or right, and this is where I stand, or this is what box I fit in. So. As much as possible, I try to approach the examples I choose and the writing I have from that angle, which is you can you can call me a lefty if you want. You can call me whatever you feel like based mm-hmm. on what you see and, and the progressive values I carry. But at the end of the day, I'm approaching this from a human rights are not political mm-hmm. perspective. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. Very, very powerful. And so I want to transition a little bit to talking about... Um, athletes in kind of the US and in the Western world <laughs> who more recently have been becoming louder. I, it seems that in the last couple of weeks, we've been hearing a lot more. Um, and so first there's this really great interview for The Real News by Dave Siren, who we just had on, who asked former NBA player Tariq Abdul Abdulhad, and he asked him why more athletes had not been following his lead and spoken out about what's going on. And he answered that it was mostly about money. And I'm just sort of wondering to what extent you agree with this. And he had said, quote, I'm going to be honest. This is one of those where you might have to sacrifice something, but something must be said. And as exceptional as you are, you, and I'm talking to these athletes, as exceptional as you are, you are only as exceptional as your moral fiber. So I was wondering, you know, what what do you think about this? Ooh, what a statement. 
What a I know. <laughs> <laughs> Let's let, let me focus on 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 the aspect of money because I think that's mm. nail on the head right there. Honestly, mm-hmm. at the end of the day, it's so easy to say and do things that 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 have no consequences at the end of the day, right? It's, e- it's easy to do that, right? With no sacrifice, with with ha- not having sacrificed anything, what have you actually? What 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 is what is your protest worth? actually to begin with mm-hmm. uh, i speak of this as a son of the arab spring like in egypt mm-hmm. I, and I, if I, I i can't even say that i have sacrificed in comparison to some of the people i know there are people who i wish were still alive today to have conversations with about the arab spring but they, they're not here because they died during things mm-hmm. like that that's a sacrifice you know and let's say for athletes your sacrifice would be monetary you might lose some sponsorships here or there that's 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 the cost. That's the cost. These things, people always think, I hear this all the time, you know, from people being like, oh, you know, those protests were too, were too intense. They blocked these highways. I couldn't do anything. What do you think a protest is? You think protests are supposed to be really that you're supposed to uh, get permission from the government and be located in this specific block? You know, is that, is that's a protest? That's a waste of time. That's just shouting into thin air. Nobody gives a damn and that doesn't change a thing. Protest and action requires sacrifice, requires costing you something. And if you're not willing to do that, then nothing changes whatsoever. And I think it's so important that this is mentioned with regards to athletes, because what they care about at the end of the day is the bottom line. And I have seen countless, countless examples of this. Athletes will speak out until it starts costing them sponsorships or potentially their jobs, right? And I understand. I understand. Not everybody wants to lose their job, et cetera, et cetera. That's rarely the risk athletes are actually facing. What they're actually mm-hmm. facing for the most part would be something monetary mm-hmm. in terms of sponsorships, especially when we're talking about in the West, U.S. athletes. Very different case when we're talking about Arab athletes in, in Europe. <laughs> Very yeah. different yeah. case. But I'm talking about like white American athletes. Mm-hmm. You're almost mm-hmm. sacrificing nothing here or there, really. Mm-hmm. I, I think a lot of uh, a recent article I did, this is a bit off topic, but kind of ties into, into what I'm saying here. Mm-hmm. A few months ago, well, it's about six months ago now, I did a piece for the New York Times, which uh, uncovered uh, Leo Messi, uh, the, the, mm-hmm. the famous football player, his uh, contract with Saudi Arabia's tourism authority. Mm-hmm. And this was the very first time we ever really got to, got to see uh, the, the, the details of, of Saudi Arabia's, uh, you know, political agenda when it comes to sports, especially in, in contract form, the details of what they wanted Messi to do, how much he was going to be paid. Speaking of money, he was being paid $25 million over three years. That's without contract Oof. renewals or anything like that. That's if he met all his pillars, which he was doing in terms of promoting the, the country. What was really fascinating, though, is that there was a non-disparagement clause in there saying that Leo Messi cannot tarnish Saudi Arabia in any way, shape, or form. And that I really thought was fascinating because mm-hmm. while people are afraid of Saudi Arabia because of the Shemal al Khashoggi uh, murder, for instance, and dismemberment, they had got this vision now that Saudi Arabia would just might, might just want to you know, take out anybody who, who displeases them. When the truth is, is that Saudi has a far better way of silencing athletes, and that's through litigation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Saudi Arabia realized what exactly Tarek here realized when he was talking to Dave Zion, which is, if you go for an athlete's money, that's the best way to silence them. So at the end of the day, Saudi Arabia's threat to them is, mon- is, 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 is legal action. We will cost you money. 
<laughs> and that yeah. keeps all these athletes silent. This, I think, we can extend to this issue with Palestine easily. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, I keep going back to this phrase that you said that sort of like, what are, I'm probably misremembering this, but it was something like, you know, what are an athlete's or what are someone's actions worth? Mm-hmm. Right. And you were kind of talking about with respect to protests, but obviously the messy example show, like it shows the other side, like what are someone's actions worth? What is someone's silence worth? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, very, very powerful stuff. And there has been a, another development where it seems like following following uh, Tariq Abdul Wahad's lead, where a range of cu- current and former athletes, many of them athletes of color and or queer non-binary athletes, including John Carlos, Kenny Stills, Laisha uh, Clarendon, released a collective statement calling for a ceasefire and holding the U.S. government accountable for complicity. So do you find this development encouraging? I mean, you know, when we're talking about, you know, like the relative safety or kind of stability that athletes have, what they might be risking, kind of what do you think about this? I generally think this is great. It does not surprise mm-hmm. me at all that we're seeing a lot of queer and non-binary Athletes. I mean, yeah. my 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 partner, my wife is also non-binary, and this is a topic mm-hmm. that resonates very, very greatly with them. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it does not surprise me at all. Again, minorities and people who have who have faced oppression understand oppression when they see it, right? right so, right. of course, it 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 always uh, lifts my heart a little bit when I see those types of groups: indigenous people, black people, mm-hmm. queer mm-hmm. people. Uh, rallying behind causes like this, even though none of these things are apples to apples. I'm not here to say that Mm -hmm. it's all the Mm -hmm. same or all can be rooted down to the same issue. I think Mm -hmm. everything is much more complicated than that and far more nuanced than that. Mm -hmm. And we don't want to lose the nuance because that's how we understand things properly. But but thematically here, just overall, this common denominator of having the oppressed side with the oppressed Mm -hmm is mm-hmm. something I will always appreciate. And we're seeing that a lot here with these athletes. And it's encouraging to see more athletes speak out. But how long has it taken? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, I just saw today that, you know, uh, the European Parliament, there are members of European Parliament and representatives of the people of Europe who are calling on FIFA, UEFA, and these other big competitive bodies to, to, to distance themselves from Israel because of the ongoing mm. human rights violations in Palestine, right? Mm. This is this is growing now, and we've got mm. these are significant mm. members of parliament now in countries like Spain, Ireland, even in Germany. Believe it or not, that's that's the wow. one that, that's the one that really really surprised me. It was wow. it was 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 Germany's even in there, and that's that's mm. a turning of the tide, and that's important. Mm. But what kills me is how how many months has this taken, and how many right. dead children that people mm-hmm. in general men women children all of them matter the same Twenty-eight thousand more how many more wounded how many amputated bodies how many athletes will never compete again that's the same thing that bothered me with the icj discussion people were we spent so much time and listen this is just my personal view on this we spent so much time discussing and debating is this genocide is this not genocide well mm-hmm. people are actually mm-hmm. dying out there right. does it right. even matter to, in the end of the day, I'm sure mm-hmm. to an extent it does. What I'm really trying to say here is that we focus so much on these, on like getting, getting, getting just one step ahead when, when you know, more and more bombs continue to drop, and it just sometimes mm-hmm. feels like is 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 this in any way useful anymore? I don't know. Right. I'd like right. to think, like you said, that this is encouraging, mm-hmm. and that mm-hmm. each added step of pressure 
is, is adds to the vulnerability that Israel eventually faces. We've mm-hmm. seen this in the past historically with South Africa. Mm-hmm. The mounting pressure in sports helped and played a role, even if symbolically, in the overall turning of the tide. I wonder if that's going to be the case here as well. But I also fear just how many more people have to be sacrificed before that final decision is taken. Absolutely. In South Africa, it took decades. Mm-hmm. Like it took so long. And exactly. like, as you said, like we don't, we, we, Palestinians don't have that long. You know, people don't have that long to sit around and wait. Um, so yeah, like, it, yeah, South Africa is such a good example because like isolating them from the international sport world mm-hmm. did have a massive impact. But again, yeah, it took decades. Um, not that it was ever going to be the only solution, but it just, it was until the 80s until a lot of like US, you know, universities and companies started like feeling the pressure to finally like divest from so apartheid true. South Africa. So, and, and, but I, I don't want to discredit or disregard all this yeah. as uh, at the same time right. because right. i i i remember when just having these discussions online would have never happened with regards mm. to israel that's why i'm saying mm-hmm. their pr mm-hmm. is disastrous this time because <laughs> mm-hmm. there is more talk about genocide apartheid ethnic cleansing when it comes to israel than i've ever seen in my entire life i'm 32 now this is more than i have personally ever ever seen I mean, mm-hmm. even even with Sheikh Jarrah, even with the killing of 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 Shirin Abu Akhla, all of that. Sure, each one sort of added and piled on just a bit more, but this is the most consensus I have ever seen of of Israel's crimes in my entire life, and that has mm-hmm. to speak for something. Absolutely, absolutely. And so when we talked a bit about kind of athlete activism, um, and in some of your articles, you talked about kind of how um, there have been responses to athlete activism from either clubs or government officials or sport officials. And how do you, I guess this is kind of a very big question, but what might some of these responses say about how people are engaging with sporting politics with respect to Palestine and Israel, like across, I would say Europe and the Middle East, North Africa, but really anywhere like this, I'm, I'm formulating this question on the fly to kind of adjust our conversation, but like, you know, do you see any kind of trends in terms of how like club teams or government officials are responding to athletes displays of athlete activism right now? Oh, well, it really depends on the country, I guess, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm, when it mm-hmm. comes to that. I mean, Turkey did not handle the Israeli athletes just mm-hmm. simply co- peacefully calling for the release of the hostages. There was nothing in there that asked for more war or anything of the sort. Like, I looked at it and I'm like, this seems like a very reasonable message mm-hmm. as far as I'm concerned. I see no reason why this person had to literally be exiled and kicked out of the country, basically, in some sort of diplomatic uh, crisis. But then again, this is what you can expect from the Erdogan regime at the end Mm -hmm. of the day as well. And I think Mm -hmm. I had cited that as well in the Football Weekly podcast. Germany has been awful in its handling. But then again, Germany has not only been awful in its handling of athletes uh, showing solidarity with Palestine, but any form of pro-Palestine protest. Uh, Germany is clearly imbuing the, the 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 collective guilt of the Holocaust into an entirely new generation, and this is this will have disastrous consequences for a country that's already already right now has its own far right problem with the rise of the AfD mm-hmm. party. This is really a difficult situation for Germany, and mm-hmm. I'm, I, and I don't like where we're going in that regard. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, there are there are other examples I can think of. For instance, <laughs> the one that the, the one that that still I find I find absolutely shocking is Karim Benzema was ac- was accused by France's Ministry of Interior. I think his name was Gerard Darmin or something along those lines. I'm, I completely butchered that French name. I'm very sorry. Of having ties with the, the Muslim Brotherhood after he showed very very normal solidarity and support for Palestine and the. Mm. Uh, I think a French senator afterwards also called for Benzema to be stripped of his Ballon d'Or award and his French mm. citizenship, which wow. is a, a, extremely alarming language in a supposed democracy, right? right. So, right. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can, there are countless examples of just how poorly some countries and, and clubs have handled this. And that was especially true in the early stages of this most recent war. So sort of in October and in November. We were seeing this sort of fervor to silence any sort of uh, criticism of Israel or or exceptional support for Palestine. And by exceptional support, I literally I'm including things like waving a flag, which is which is crazy when you think of mm-hmm. right. There were examples of that in the UK as well. We're seeing a bit less of that now, I would say. Right, we're seeing a bit less of that. Uh, again. It's a lot harder to defend Israel now than it was in October for a lot of these countries mm-hmm. because they're seeing the scale of the destruction taking place. They're seeing the co- legitimate collective punishment of an entire population for crimes they did not commit, for the mm-hmm. crimes of a few, let's say. Right? It's 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 horrific behavior. It's very hard to 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 defend that. Even Canada, which staunchly supported Israel at the start of the war, is now calling for a ceasefire. That's significant. This is a country with a very powerful Israeli lobby, right? I also think right now what I find really interesting is not the sports leagues and bodies in specific countries. What I find most interesting are the international sports bodies, mm, mm. the FIFAs, the UEFA, mm-hmm. the IOCs, the International Olympic Committee, because they are the ones who've painted themselves in a in a corner. <laughs> Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. FIFA's a fascinating one. FIFA's a really fascinating one. I was actually just interviewing Nicholas Blinko, the, the, the author of a phenomenal, phenomenal book called More Noble Than War, uh, A Football History of Israel-Palestine. Truly, I, I, I highly, highly recommend this book for any fan of football, any fan of history in general. And one of the things we were discussing that we thought was really interesting was that FIFA, which... I mean, is FIFA after all not exa- it's, it's 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 a global mafia, one of the most popular mafias <laughs> in the world, was the first international organization to recognize Palestine back in 1998. That was a huge, mm. huge victory for Palestine right then. Right, that's a very powerful diplomatic victory. FIFA played a role in that. Yet FIFA is also the organization that uh, has allowed. FIFA sanctioned matches to take place in Israeli settlements in the West Bank, right? Mm-hmm. And the West Bank being a territory that's been under Israeli military occupation since 1967, right? So FIFA has taken no action against that. Gianni Infantino is more than happy to stand in, in Jerusalem in, at, the minist- at the, what was it called, the Museum of Tolerance and declare that Israel, uh, he would love to see Israel co-host the World Cup with its Arab neighbors. <laughs> He's more than happy to do stuff like that, but mm-hmm. to stop matches from taking place on Israeli settlements or hell, to even take action right now against Israel, he has no interest to. Funny enough, though, 
Still, to add more nuance to this FIFA thing and the complexities of this organization, he's also one of the only major sports leaders who actually sent letters of, I guess, condolence and uh, to to both the the Israeli and the Palestinian Federation. So he's been in touch with them more than others have. Wow, which is. Interesting, to say the least. Like, I, I don't exactly have a conclusive <laughs> uh, yeah, statement yeah. to add there, mm-hmm. other than, than Gianni is a, is a strange human being and FIFA is, is a complex entity, but it is not doing enough right now. But the one I, that, has really, that has really tied itself up in knots is the International Olympic Committee, I find. Mm-hmm. The International Olympic Committee actually took significant action against, against Russia, right? And, and I mean, so mm-hmm. did FIFA, right? Banned them from the, world, from the most recent World Cup in 2022, banned Russia, that is, after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And the IOC did the same thing. They, 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 they've put down Russian athletes as neutrals. They've put significant limitations on who can, uh, on who can take place. In, in, in competitions, I think the International Paralympic Committee barred athletes from Russia and Belarus to even take part in the tournament. But, and, and the, the, the most recent one, I think, was when the IOC suspended the Russian Olympic Committee following Moscow's, uh, well, what it had done. Yes, it had it absorbed the sports organizations in four of the occupied territories in Ukraine. So suddenly turned those into Russian, Russian sports organizations. Now, this was a clear breach of the Olympic Charter, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. there are double standards here, really, because if taking over sports facilities is a red line, then mm-hmm. isn't, doesn't that count for, say, Yarmouk Stadium as well, which was right. turned into an right. internment camp? Again, mm-hmm. it's not apples to apples. People will say, well, they mm-hmm. didn't hold on to a well, they didn't technically annex it. If we're just, if we're mincing words on technicalities here like that, then, right. then you've lost right. the point already, right? At the end of the yes. day, it's, it's the IOC's willingness to take action mm-hmm. for a cause it knew it was not going to face significant backlash on, being for Ukraine over Russia, mm-hmm. versus willing to actually step, put one toe over the line where Israel doesn't want it to be, right? Yeah. That's, that's very frustrating <laughs> for someone like me to, 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 mm-hmm. to, to, to see. Another example that I think of a lot, and this is the one that doesn't exactly have many, I've, I, even the critics of my, my arguments, and I made this case in an article for The Guardian calling the case mm-hmm. for, sanctions, for sports sanctions against Israel. Even the critics could not argue this one point, which was the IOC has barred athletes from Russia and Belarus who have what they call military contracts, basically mm-hmm. those who are active uh, participants in the military. Well. I'm assuming there's going to be a lot of Israeli athletes in the Paris Olympics mm-hmm. coming up. A lot of them will be active members of the IDF. There are previous gold and, 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 and medalists generally in the Olympics from Israel who went back and just continued uh, serving in the IDF. We are going to see the same thing again. There is no doubt about it. Is anybody going to stop it? No. That is significant inconsistency, a glaring inconsistency that says a lot about the IOC and about FIFA. It also undermines their principles of fairness and equality, right? Where is their integrity? Where is the impartiality when it comes to these topics? Or is it just that Palestinian lives aren't worth as much to them? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you you had a really great, great line in that piece um, for The Guardian, which we'll link in the show notes, that I think really highlights the fact that you can 
that the, the the refusal their refusal to levy the same kind of sanctions, right? Oh, well, a it opens the door as you talked about to these like nitty gritty questions that are really about like what aboutism, right? They are mm-hmm. not they're not like good faith questions, right? Mm-hmm. They're questions to deflect from the real issues at large to kind of get people bogged down in the weeds, such as historians like myself who were like who will like debate you know, genocide and fascism and all these things, and then like not zoom out and be like, yep. this is actually like this is not an academic debate, right? This is actually like killing people right now. Mm-hmm. And, and I think you in that article, you really highlight sort of the lack of who, the, the fact that these organizations, as you said, don't value Palestinian lives. They do not view their lives as being human on the same level as they do, say, Ukrainian or Israeli or, or American, right, or sort of other, other lines. And I think, I think you highlighted that really well. I, th- I mean, thank you. It's, I, I, I said how I felt. Honestly, mm-hmm. at the time, mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. and I said this line. I think in a different in a different piece I wrote for for Sports Politica, which is it's hard not to feel not not to feel like people uh, people don't really seem to care about people who look like me dying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I would love to. I would love to not be correct here. Yeah. It's how we feel right now, and it's not mm-hmm. just me. There's others I have spoken to. There's other Arabs, there's other Muslims, there's other people from the what they call now the global south who say the same yeah. thing. And I don't like to divide us on, the, on these kinds of lines. I really don't. Because I believe in the, 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 that we can all learn from each other. I've, I've had one foot in the Arab world and one foot in the West for the last 15 years of my life. And I like it that way. I like being able to absorb the best of both worlds. I don't want us to have to live in such a divisive state where no one trusts the other side. One side dehumanizes the other, and then the other side is resentful. That's not mm-hmm. going to... We are facing a very difficult political time as it is with the rise of more autocracies and more authoritarianism and more dictatorships and the return of fascism mm-hmm. on top mm-hmm. of that. Mm-hmm. More division and divisiveness does not help us. But it has been heartbreaking. I have, I have worked in the media. I've, I, I, I've written for the New York Times, an outlet that I grew up Reading, it was one of the few papers in English I'd find in Bahrain and in Egypt when I was living there. I loved it so much. I loved reading it. It made me feel smart to read that paper mm-hmm. as a kid. And I'd go through the sports pages and I'd go through the politics section. And eventually I got to write for the New York Times. And then I made the front page of the New York mm-hmm. Times. And they send me the, 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 the A1 plate that they send to, you know, when you make, your, when you mm-hmm. make the, the front page for the first time. They send you the actual printing plate. And these are things I would like to celebrate, but I still haven't framed that play because I have a lot to say about the New York mm-hmm. Times right now. Sure, they've done mm-hmm. some good reporting, but can we really ignore the small things, what I guess we can call the microaggressions, the different choice of language that they use in their titles, the passive headlines when it comes to the killing of Palestinians? Mm-hmm. The, the fact of the matter is they're much more willing to use the terms tragedy, trauma, uh, killing, mm-hmm. murder, massacres when it comes to Israel, but they don't use that language when it comes to Palestine. Why is that? Why are you dehumanizing the Palestinians? And by okay. extension, why are you dehumanizing people who look like me? Mm-hmm. Why? I, I would love for this not to be the scenario, but it, that is one example that I see just in the New York Times, just me as being somebody who participates in the media, and I have heard this from other journalists at the times i've heard this from other journalists in mainstream media that they don't feel well represented now that they feel left behind right now as a matter of mm-hmm. fact they feel like they've been turned into the enemy as well so others mm-hmm. have been silenced and 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 or and worse i find self-censoring 
on top of it. A journalist should never have to self-censor. <laughs> that shouldn't be a thing. Yeah. But that's the situation we're in right now. And it's, it's so frustrating that even the organizations that claim that they are about impartiality, that they are about the purity of sports mm-hmm. and that sports, mm-hmm. how dare the IOC and FIFA claim that they are entities that bring about peace? How mm-hmm. dare they claim mm-hmm. such a thing while they handle these situations like this? I never want to hear the IOC come out again and say, we are about peace or that we can be right. bringers of peace. These are not mm-hmm. harbingers of peace. These are mafias at the end of the day. And they will take advantage of us the same way they take advantage of any other entity they can. All in the surface, more and more profit. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so I thought we would end with this question about um, a female Palestinian karate champion. Uh, we'll try to pronounce her name, Nagam Abu Samra. And you talked about how Samra lost her leg and as well as her sister um, in an Israeli airstrike in Gaza in December and how she was taken to Egypt for treatment, but ended up uh, dying there. Now, one of the reasons that seemed that you talked about her was that she owned a, a gym in Gaza that offered training in karate to girls and young women. And you note how in a 2012 interview for TED Talks, she explained that, quote, I wanted every girl to feel her strength from within. I also wanted for them to be able to protect themselves and be able to make their own decisions in life. And I, I feel like this is such, this is very much how like women's sport and sport for girls is always portrayed. Well, portrayed mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, I guess, I guess maybe the protect themselves is something that, you know, has been hotly debated, but Western media and the IOC, FIFA, right, all these organizations, they, they often tend to portray women such as Samra as being some, some, summarily repressed that Islam represses them. And that Western sport is something that can supposedly lift them up and like liberate them. <laughs> And so, you know, the ironies here are like massive. There's so much like racism here and just so much awfulness. And so what might her case signify, right? When we're talking about like peace and kind of unity and all these things that supposedly like, I say Western sport, not because it's not only practice in the West, but these cultures come from the West. So, you know, what do you think this, this, um, what do you think her, her life and her words and her work signifies? I, I I highlighted uh, Nerem Abu Samra. She, her case really broke my heart in many ways because mm-hmm. we we thought that she could she could actually survive. She might have been one of the lucky ones who could have made it out and survived. But even then, can we call it luck if you can no longer mm-hmm. participate in the sport that you love so much? There's so few people like her to say. I, I think when you, I chose a combat sport example there for a variety of reasons, and I'll try I'll try and keep this brief because there's a few points I would have, I would like to make. One of them is that combat sports are generally viewed as extremely masculine, there and they've been utilized as hypermasculine sports to an extent can be very toxic as well. Especially the fact that they're utilized by autocrats and authoritarians all the time, if only to present those themselves in turn as strong men, really, mm-hmm. and 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 sort of get that rub of of machismo from them think think mussolini's use of football but on a modern scale ramzan kadyrov loving the ufc exactly falls under that and that's really the impression people get of combat sports all the time not realizing that there are plenty of of female and queer participants who use it for a variety of other reasons and it is more along the lines of what these sports should be for it is it is discipline mm-hmm. it is passion it is independence in many ways as well these are now as i've 
just previously was just talking about how I don't believe in the romanticization of, of, of major sports and things like the IOC and FIFA being harbingers of peace. I do believe in the individual qualities and benefits that come from sports. And Nagam Abu Samra represented that for me. Starting her own gym in Gaza, a place that at the end of the day, yes, is quite conservative. Unfortunately, the less education you have in the Arab world in these regions, these, you end up with these pockets where the influence of Wahhabi-style Islam and, and, and far more conservatism ends up taking place. And that, in turn, and, so, and with regards to these patriarchal structures, does impact women a lot more than it will impact men. I've seen this with my own eyes, unfortunately, in Egypt as well. But with that being said, to see someone like, like Nagam Abu Samra actually rise to be able to open up her own gym and to train women, to empower women, that matters. That's what she said to herself, right? I wanted every girl to feel her strength from within. That's that level of independence and empowerment that can come from sport. Another example I always like to think of is in 2016, when people started writing about Mohammed bin Salman, and mind you, I have done my fair share of critical writing on Mohammed bin Salman and about Saudi's uh, current sports drive, I interviewed this Saudi-American woman who had just moved back from the United States to Saudi as Saudi Arabia was starting to open up, and she started her own kickboxing gym. And I asked her then, and she said, listen, I don't have any... I don't, I, I'm not naive here. I understand the situation I'm in. I understand that it's not as free, et cetera, et cetera, as it can be. But I have an opportunity right now to teach these women something that they, will, they would never have learned otherwise. I have an opportunity now to empower them and to help, and to help them realize something within themselves, build confidence that society was not going to give them so, so easily. So a confidence that in many cases, unfortunately, their husbands won't give them. I was just in Norway where, uh, where I was giving a, a talk and many others were giving talks there as well, including Saudi activist Lina Al-Hadlul. Lina Al-Hadlul is, is a remarkable human being, truly one of the bravest women I know. And she was talking about the issues of domestic violence and abuse in Saudi Arabia and how there are new, no, there's no recourse for women really, under, the, under the, the male guardianship system. They can be taken to these, what were they called, sort of care facilities that were basically prisons that you couldn't get out of until your mm. guardian, your male guardian, signed to get you out. So imagine you were escaping the person who's abusing you. You go to this place and you can't get out until he gets you out. Mm. So mm -mm. this is why these women were opening gyms like that. This is, this is why someone, someone like that Saudi uh, uh, person I, that I had spoken to was interested in going back and facing that to help these other women. That's what Samra, that was Nahim, sorry, Abu Samra was also doing, right? And that, that to me is so important that they're doing it from themselves to fix their own problems because at the end of the day, not everybody needs the West to fix their problems. This mm -hmm, idea, mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. people can just parachute into other countries and white knight their way to success is mm -hmm. the biggest load of nonsense I have ever heard. And you hear it all the time, even though there's truly no evidence of such. You hear it from organizations saying, well, us going here, you know, will be better for the country overall. And then you'll hear it from athletes. I think of Jordan Henderson, uh, the, the former captain of Liverpool and uh, in the English Premier League. He was a, a huge proponent of, of queer rights in uh, in, in, in sports in general and just, just generally was, was very supportive of the LGBTQ plus community would wear this rainbow armband and he did this himself nobody forced him into it he wanted to be that supporter of these groups 
Eventually, he signs to join Saudi Arabia in its big sports drive to have mm. uh, to grow its domestic league. And this took a lot of people by surprise, including his queer supporters, who said, "Yeah, you've turned your back on us to now go and mm-hmm. compete in a place where we're not only considered not not people, but we could be killed in." Mm-hmm. And his response was, "I'm hoping to change things while I'm there." Mm-hmm. It's lazy. It's racist. Mm-hmm. It's bigoted. It's yeah. uh, outrageous to think that that's that a you are capable of of changing things, and b that we need you to change things for us. Mm-hmm. That's that's what drives me crazy in this situations. Mm-hmm. No, the West and its sports do not lift them up. They don't liberate mm-hmm. them from oppressive Islamic rule. Only those women, only us, only our people will liberate ourselves in these situations. Right? And everybody who claims they're coming and bringing their sports to liberate us is lying. What they're doing is they see a gold mine and they're yeah. going with their little pans to pick up as many of those golden rocks as they can mm-hmm. at our expense. Mm-hmm. 100%. Yeah, no, and just, just the way that you describe it. I, I mean, I was already thinking this already, but the way you describe it, it's just so, I mean, it's colonialism, neocolonialism, mm-hmm. whatever, whatever you want to call it, right? I mean, I think of like some of the research I'm doing on the IOC, like talking about, you know, wanting to quote unquote, like conquer Africa in the 1920s, <laughs> like to literally saying like, we are going to conquer Africa is like the ultimate battle to like develop international sport. And, you know, the, the, these ideas about quote unquote, like developing different people across the African continent mm-hmm. through the use of Olympic sport. And it's just, people aren't using that language, at least not publicly. I mean, the, 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 the language of development is certainly still there. Mm-hmm. Right. But like not using the conquering element, you know, they're thinking that they're just not using that exact language. But I think, I think Samra's example, like really shows also like how, people can use sport for ends that include like teaching people that like bodily autonomy amongst many other things and how, mm-hmm. um, as you said, how, how, how people in different parts of the world need to be empowered and need to be able to do that in the ways they want to. Absolutely. And I'd honestly be very interested in, in reading your research whenever it's, whenever it's ready. This <laughs> sounds I'm, fascinating. I, <laughs> I'd, I'd be happy to share. I'm, yes, I've got this monster it. chapter I'm working on, but um, yeah, no, I just, I went last summer to the IOC archives. I hadn't been there in a while and was like, just floored that they're actually just like using this language. Um, wow. But in the meantime, there are scholars that have written about it. So I'm happy to, to kind of, if you need something in the immediate time or want something more immediately, I'm happy to share what's been done because it was like truly, when I saw this, it's truly horrifying. And then they're basically picking up this like project to, to quote unquote, like develop sport as in the decolonizing world during decolonization and in the 1960s, especially. So it's, yeah, it's, it's, it like shocked me. It shouldn't have, but like it did because again, just Cooper 10, especially just using this really horrific Mm -hmm. language. Um, oh no! I'd be, yeah, I'd be very interested in this because I'm generally also I'm, I'm I'm taking a look at the IOC and FIFA and a bit deeper, trying to also understand their role really over the past hundred years in emboldening mm. and empowering autocrats as well. So this is just mm. this would add a lot of uh, a, a lot of you know layers of nuance and context for me as well. Just mm. just being able to see this stuff because honestly, I didn't know this. Yeah, I didn't until like a couple years ago, I started like reading some secondary uh, literature on it. So I'll certainly send your way some articles, at least, like I said, for now that I think would kind of that you might find interesting. Wonderful.
Yeah. Well, thank you so much for such a really important and nuanced um, interview. And I just want to say, I, I so appreciate your like attention to specifics and details. As you said, the nuance of the context, like comparisons are important, but so are paying attention to those details mm-hmm. and the nuance, because that is how, that is how we help to like um, contextualize people in all their humanity. So just thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, it was a real pleasure. Thank you so much for the thoughtful questions and, and, and just the wonderful discussion. I really, really appreciate it. Mm-hmm.